Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. In our last episode, we talked about the hero of Guadalcanal, Sergeant John Bassalone, who held the line against the Japanese assault south of Henderson Field. But this was a multi-pronged attack, and the fighting was just as vicious on the western perimeter, where in addition to hand-to-hand combat, we would see a bayonet charge. Today, we have the story of Platoon Sergeant Mitchell Page of the 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines on Guadalcanal. To set the stage a little bit here, we'll talk about the rank. Platoon sergeant at this point in the Marine Corps is both a position and a rank. So platoon sergeant Page is a platoon sergeant in a machine gun company. More on that later. It's an E6. E6 also in the Marines this time is a staff sergeant. The difference being staff sergeant E6, the rocker is straight across in the bottom, tends to be more of an administrative role. Whereas platoon sergeant E6 with a curved rocker on the bottom um, is more of a line platoon, a platoon sergeant. They're going to be in the rifle companies. So at this point, 1942, Page has been in the Marines for six years before they land at Guadalcanal. And he's a platoon sergeant for, again, a machine gun platoon made up of eight M1917 30 caliber machine guns. These things are big. I mean, it takes an entire team to operate, three to four usually. And Page is in charge of eight of them. That's going to be a lot of firepower he's going to bring into the fight. Now, we've talked a little bit at Guadalcanal or or about how at Guadalcanal, both sides are reinforcing throughout the fight. So later in the war, when the U.S. would land on certain islands, it would kind of be a fixed amount of enemy soldiers. We knew what we were getting into. Say it was 10,000, 12,000, 20,000, whatever. The Japanese weren't going to be able to reinforce, but the U.S. could. Guadalcanal, one of the interesting aspects of this fight is both sides are reinforcing. So after the Americans land with 11,000, they'll eventually build that up before the Battle of Henderson Field to over 20,000, right? Constantly reinforcing, constantly building up their lines. Japanese are doing the same. And by the time the Battle of Henderson Field kicks off, they're around 20,000 as well. The 7th Marines is one of the division, one of the regiments that shows up during that time. They land at Guadalcanal on September 18th. So think about that. As we're you know, quickly covering these battles in 30 minutes or less and then jumping a month down the road, the 7th Marines showed up you know, five weeks after the landings of Guadalcanal. I, I forget that sometimes. I tend to think that all of this happened so fast or we had everybody there at one time, but this was a big move for the, the 1st Marine Division to get the 7th Marines there. It, it's, you know, they're really hanging on by toenail. They don't have a lot of ground under control at Guadalcanal. So anytime they get a unit, especially one of the size of the 7th Marines, that's going to be a big boost. can help tie in the lines, actually um, fully tie in the lines. There were a lot of gaps prior to the Battle of Henderson Field. Just like the Japanese, U.S. forces trickling in over time. Now the fight that we're going to talk about here with Platoon Sergeant Page is the exact same battle, technically that we talked about with Sergeant John Bassalone, but it didn't happen all at once. Now, given the choice, the Japanese wanted it to happen all at once. They wanted to hit the Marine positions, or I should say the American positions at this point, because there are some U.S. Army units involved during the Battle of Henderson Field. Japanese 
would have preferred to hit the U.S. lines in multiple locations at once, overwhelm our defenses. You know, we can't move reinforcements. We can't, um, you know, effectively coordinate or mass artillery and so on and so forth. But we've talked about the jungle being an issue for the Japanese. And that's what's at play here. They just can't get all of their forces staged and ready to fight at the same time. And even when they do get them near the front, it's not like there's a great big marshalling area where they all can stand by and then, you know, the bugle goes off and, and 12,000 Japanese charge. These, these jungle passes are so restrictive, so difficult to see and move through that it's really, really hard to get very many people into the fight at once. It's, it's sloppy. It's sloppy. And that's not really the nature of the Japanese military. It's going to play out in the United States favor here. Um, but it just shows how challenging the fight was at Guadalcanal. Before anything kicks off, the Japanese command delays the battle until the 24th of October. But again, communication being a challenge here for a lot of reasons, not everyone gets the word, which is a problem when you're trying to coordinate attacks. And on the evening of October 23rd, some Japanese attack to the west, kind of the northwestmost portion of the American lines right along the coast at the mouth of a river named the Matanikau. Nine Japanese tanks, we don't often think about tanks of Guadalcanal, but they were there. Nine Japanese tanks move across this sandbar along with some supporting infantry. But, I mean, look, this is the only thing the, the U.S. has to focus on you know, the evening of the 23rd. So that idea of massing artillery and really being able to reinforce and hammer the Japanese in one position, that's happening here. And in short order, all of the tanks are knocked out. The, the artillery and mortars rain down on the advancing Japanese infantry. The attack is stopped. I mean, just hammered the Japanese. The, the, the attack did nothing. Well, I should say this. The attack gained no ground, but it did tip off the Americans that this attack that they knew was coming at some point might be underway. Now, remember, this western portion along the Matanikau is where many of the Americans believe the main attack might come. So after the sun comes up on the 24th, the, the morning after that attack, Platoon Sergeant Page and the 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines are directed to move west, reinforce. They're asked to reinforce along a ridge. And this ridge is almost like a finger sticking out from the American lines. The American lines, if you think about it, it's like a bubble. To their north is the open ocean or the, the channel of Guadalcanal the sea, with a semicircle around the airfield. To the northeast, we have the Battle of the Teneru. To the south, we have Edson's Ridge, what we talked about last time with, with uh, John Bassalone. Um, to the west, again, we have kind of this bubble sticking out. But then at the extreme northwest along the coast is this finger. And the finger points out inland. It's to the south, open jungle, enemy territory. To the north, open ocean, to the west, the Matanikau. It's not very deep, this little finger that pokes out. It's about 1,000 meters across, deep, I should say, from the water to you know the, the front of the American lines that face the, the open jungle controlled by the Japanese. Compare that with a three-mile deep area in other portions of the line. So this group is kind of out there on the edge, the 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines. And 
as soon as they get there, Page starts having his guys dig in. They kind of recognize that they're they're a little bit in an exposed position, but it's it's key terrain being able to sit up here on this ridge and kind of watch some of the approaches to the American West. Now, by the evening of the 25th, after they finished digging in, remember Page and his men got there on the 24th, Page sees some lights to their south. Remember, the south is the open jungle that the Japanese might be attacking through. The west is the river. He sees these lights, recognizes them as the enemy. They're too far away to do anything, too far away for direct fire weapons like his machine guns, certainly too far away for grenades. They also don't want to give away their position. He calls this up, notifies higher, but but nothing's really done about it at this point. But what he did see, as it turns out, was the kind of main body of the Japanese attack, or at least the main body in this sector of his line, 1,200 strong. By two o'clock on the morning of October 26th, Page hears the Japanese talking. I mean, they are as quiet as they can be, Page and his men, right? Keeping their position, their defensive positions, especially the machine guns, a secret until the last minute is critical. They don't want the Japanese to maneuver into a position where they're not, instead of saying what they don't want to have happen, what they do want to have happen is the Japanese come right into their field of fire before they open up maximizing the efficiency of every burst of machine gun fire. If the Japanese know where the machine guns are, they might try to go around another direction. They're certainly not going to try to attack right into the bulk of the automatic rifle fire or the automatic weapon fire. So Page and his men are dead quiet and he can start to hear the Japanese talking, advancing forward. He crawls around to his team's positions, notifying them in the dead of night, right? Pitch black. Get ready. Here they come. It's close. I mean, Page knows what's happening at this point, right? They understand it's the night attacks they have to watch out for. And as he's moving between his teams, he starts to hear something scraping the ground. Gear. The Japanese are crawling. And if he can hear them crawling on the ground, they're not very far away. Hearing that, Page orders his men to open fire. And just like we talked about in the story of Sergeant John Bassalone and his men and so many other situations around the Pacific Theater, well, really throughout history, the flash of the machine guns lit up the engagement area and showed Page and his fellow Marines just how many Japanese soldiers were that close. They were right on top of them. I've said it before, but think about that. Like it's, it's almost like a strobe light. You've ever been in a haunted house? The strobe light. Every time the light goes, you can see, you know, the enemy getting closer and closer and closer. And when one falls, another pops up, and you shoot one, and he keeps coming. It would have been terrifying. Now we've talked about the issue before of machine guns overheating. Right? This isn't a video game where you can just hold it down and four hundred rounds come out at a time without blinking an eye. If you're not careful and you fire too fast, the machine gun will become useless. You can't use it at all. And that's not a matter of you really shouldn't fire it because it's not good for it. I mean, it'll stop working. So if you don't operate these systems correctly, you won't be able to use it at all, which is, again, easy to say when you're sitting on a practice range, zeroing in the weapon. But when it's the middle of the night, 
in maybe your first, in one of your first major engagements of your life in combat and you have Japanese soldiers charging your position and all this between you and your men is, is the machine gun that you're manning. It's really, really hard, hard to imagine how these guys had the discipline to watch their rates of fire, not overheat the barrels. Well, that sometimes is too much to ask. Sometimes you can't slow down as much as you need to. And pretty quickly, multiple machine guns and pages platoon overheat. And every time one overheats, that creates a window. It creates a window in the line for the Japanese to charge through, and they do. Pretty quickly, Page and his men find themselves in hand-to-hand combat. Not a lot. The lines aren't completely overrun, but in a few areas, Japanese reach the American positions. Eventually, they're killed, but the lines are kind of fragmented. I mean, if nothing else, think about it like a punch in the face. You might be able to get back up and keep fighting, but it's going to jar you a little bit. The first wave... After the Americans killed a few Japanese that broke through the lines, we can call that first wave repulsed. They held. Page and his men held. Platoon Sergeant Page is moving all up and down the line at this point. He's fixing machine guns, swapping out barrels that have overheated, resupplying ammunition. Remember how heavy this ammo is to move up and down the battlefield. Getting his men back into the fight, providing aid where is needed, pulling the wounded off when when, when that's the required action. But we've seen this before. We've seen before... It's not just one wave, right? That's the initial wave. Given the thick jungle, they couldn't put 1,200 online in charge, but maybe a company would go or a few platoons and then another and then another and then another. This next wave focuses almost entirely on the left flank of the American position and it's overwhelming. It is a very well carried out attack from the viewpoint of the Japanese and it nearly wipes out Page's entire platoon. Everyone in his platoon, well, let's say it this way. Page in the chaos of this fight finds himself manning a machine gun and just about can't stop firing. It is go, 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 go. And finally the machine gun is shot out from underneath him, destroyed while he's firing it. At that point, he looks up and down his line and realizes he is the only man from his platoon not killed or wounded with a machine gun that's still operating until it was shot out from underneath him. That's going to be a problem, not just for Page, but for the entire American position on Guadalcanal, right? So if they are on the western portion of the American perimeter and there's eight machine guns that are out of operation... That might be the window the Japanese need to roll up the left flank. That might be that might be the path the Japanese need to come around and cut off the Americans from the beach. This is serious. This is the type of situation we talked about a little bit with John Bassalone, where you say, "Man, what if he wasn't there? What if he didn't do what he did? What does the next stage of this fight look like if Page is killed or Page retreats?" Or any number of things. Instead, Page turns back to friendly lines, runs to a sister company that they're tied in with, picks up a machine gun, 
an operational machine gun, at least one that's not broken, grabs a few Marines and makes his way back to his position. He sets up that machine gun as the enemy attack is continuing and continues to pour fire into the advancing Japanese, moving up this ridge towards his position. As he's doing this, he's moving back and forth between, as the Japanese are attacking, he's moving back and forth between the Marine positions. Just because his guys are wounded and can't operate the machine gun doesn't mean the machine gun is down. Page can still fire it. So he moves into some of these roles, starts firing, has the wounded Marines doing whatever they can. In some cases, it's swapping out barrels. In other cases, it's helping him reload. In other cases, it's spotting targets. Page is, 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 is working the best way he can with the Marines you know, in any way possible. As the sun begun, begins to come up, begun, as the sun begins to come up on October 26th, the Japanese attack is reeling. Due to Page and his platoon and quite a few other Marines, they've suffered pretty staggering losses at this point. The reason that Page and the men of the 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines hold this position and were put in this position is because it's dominating terrain. They, they hold the high ground. From where the Japanese are attacking. And as the Japanese pause, maybe considering another assault, Page sees an opportunity to end the fight. So he picks up a machine gun, heavy, right? Usually fired from a tripod on the ground in a fixed position. But he picks it up by hand, grabs a group of Marines, orders them to fix bayonets, and they advance down the hill. As they start pushing into the Japanese positions, a Japanese officer stands up and starts shooting at Page with his pistol. He misses. Every round misses. Page lets loose a burst from his machine gun, kills the Japanese officer, and as the Marines, bayonets fixed, continue down the ridge, they eventually find themselves without any targets to engage. That's usually a good sign. They just ended the attack. At this point, nearly 1,200 Japanese soldiers had attacked Page and his battalion along this portion of the line, with the bulk hitting right in, in Page's position. But like we mentioned a few minutes ago, what would this attack have looked like if Platoon Sergeant Page hadn't been there? What if he hadn't kept his men firing? What if he hadn't held their fire until the Japanese were right on top of him? What if he hadn't gotten his other guys up and running? What if he hadn't done the barrel changes for his men when needed? What if he hadn't led that bayonet charge down the hill? For his actions that day, Platoon Sergeant Page would be awarded the Medal of Honor and would be commissioned as a second lieutenant just a few months later. He would as an officer now, fight with his men until 1944 when he took on a training role for new officers in the U.S. Army, moved back to the United States for the end of the war. He left the Marines, left the military shortly after the war, but as the Korean War kicked off, was called back into service, spent a little bit more time again in training roles for junior officers before retiring in 1959 as a colonel after 23 years of service. And in 2003, Mitchell Page would pass away. Now Colonel Mitchell Page would pass away at the age of 85. On a random side interesting note here, there's a G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe action figure, 
modeled after Platoon Sergeant Page charging down the hill, machine gun in hand. Worth looking up. Now, we haven't really talked about the Navy during this series on Guadalcanal, but despite how that may have looked or despite how the Navy may have looked to some of the Marines and soldiers on land, they didn't leave. They just fought in a different area against the Imperial Japan, the Japanese Imperial Navy. More on that next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.